going to touch on endocrine. It's really hard to tell what's actually going on. Most feared complication is quadriplegia. The mortality for HHS can be up to 10 times greater. The number one culprit behind this is infection. They become progressively more confused, altered. Our primary goal here is to treat the precipitating event. Welcome everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. As always, we are so excited, so happy that you are joining us here for yet another CCPEM podcast. And we're going to change things up. We're going to do things a little different in terms of a topic. We're still going to talk about a critically ill topic, resuscitating a critically ill patient population. But we're going to touch on endocrine during this podcast, something that I'm not sure that we've touched on, if any, during our many years of doing the podcast. So very excited to cover this particular topic, but I have to bring in my amazing co-stars here on CCPEM because this simply wouldn't be the podcast without them. So Dr. Peter W., Dr. John Greenwood, and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. Peter, I'm going to start with you making the rounds. How are you? That's doing great. We just celebrated carnival here. So Mardi Gras was yesterday. Spectacular weather, huge crowds. So New Orleans is back open. We'll have French Quarter Festival coming up and then followed quickly by Jazz Festival. So consider it in your journeys for the spring. There, I believe, is an air of optimism, I think, in there the medical hope. world as we're continuing to see decreases in COVID numbers and a return to normalcy. Not quite, but heading in that direction. Dr. Greenwood, Philadelphia, how goes it? Oh, great, Mike. So I had a little bit of a personal milestone since our last podcast. So I had my 40th birthday. And for my 40th birthday, I ran 40 kilometers outside. This is like a kind of a staged run. I broke it up, but just for fun. Now, when you said we were discussing endocrine, I felt like I had a mini stroke because endocrine, like you said, we haven't talked about in a while, and this could go any which way. So endocrine is always easy. Maybe I just got hypoglycemic. I don't know. Or maybe I'm just getting old, but things are going well up here. Thanks. Well, happy belated 40th. And after that run, it, maybe this endocrine topic should be iatrogenic hyponatremia. You were hydrating yourself during that 40 kilometers. There you go. Well, congrats on that. What a great milestone and really, in all sincerity, quite a lot you have accomplished in your young 40 years. So, so glad to have you here as a co-star here on the podcast. Now, as always, let's head west before we get into our education topic and see how things are in San Francisco. Dr. Rodriguez. John, you're still a baby. You said that's amazing <laughs> that you ran 40 kilometers. I don't think I could do a quarter of that, not even a 10K. Things out here are great. The weather is beautiful and COVID numbers are decreasing. Yeah, we're optimistic about everything out here. Sounds great, Rob. Well, let's dive into our education for this podcast. And the topic is going to be a glucose abnormality. And I think in terms of emergency medicine, critical care, even hospitalist care, we focus on DKA. We treat DKA quite a bit. And to that end, we're not going to talk about DKA this podcast. We're going to talk about another hyperglycemic emergency that actually can be a life-threatening hyperglycemic emergency that has a mortality that's 10 times greater than DKA, and that is hyperosmolar 
hyperglycemic state, or HHS as it's now called. And this topic is based on a really great, great review article by some friends of ours, Britt Long, George Willis, and colleagues that was published just a few months ago in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. It is titled, Diagnosis and Management of the Critically Ill Adult Patient with Hyperglycemic Hyperosmolar State. Just a fantastic review. And we're going to touch on a few pearls that Britt and his colleagues highlight in this amazing article. And as I mentioned, just to get started, we focus a lot in terms of ED resuscitation and critical care on DKA. But compared to DKA, HHS actually tends to be more common in our non-insulin-dependent diabetic patients. And when we have patients that present with HHS, well, up to 20%, this may be the initial presentation of diabetes for them. And as I already alluded to, the mortality for HHS can be up to 10 times greater than that for DKA. In fact, mortality for HHS can get as high as 20%. So this is definitely in her wheelhouse in terms of critically ill patient presentations and the need for appropriate resuscitation. And that's what we're going to touch on. So with that introduction, Peter, let me swing things over to you. When we talk about causes, we get a patient and we're going to hit on the diagnostic features as to what confirms the diagnosis of HHS. But let's say we've done that. What should we be thinking about here in terms of the causes, the etiologies? Thanks, Mike. So when we think about HHS and the etiology, this is a great pearl for you to glean from this, is that far and away, the number one culprit behind this is infection. And this occurs in 40 to 60% of the cases that we'll see. But that should be something that sticks with all of us. And the other issue is what's the most common infection that would cause HHS? And that would be pneumonia. And that's followed by urinary tract infection. So you'd really need to keep sepsis in the mix for all of this as well. So diabetic medication noncompliance is actually the second most common cause. And you go from 40 to 60% with infections all the way down to 20% when you think about noncompliance of your diabetes medicine. So there's some other triggers that you could see. You could see it associated with acute coronary syndrome and MI. You can see it with PE. You can see it with pancreatitis. You can see it with seizure. This is a really cool thing. One of the first cases I had as a resident was actually a focal motor seizure that's called epilepsia partialis continuum one of those rare hybrid things that can be caused by HHS. So just a March seizure over the upper extremity on one side. So you'll see that stroke, GI bleed, alcohol or substance abuse can trigger this. A toxic congestion can do this as well as renal injury. And so those are the top causes for HHS. Outstanding, Peter. Great, great pearls already to kick off this podcast. Now, Rob, what's happening in HHS? Is it that different from DKA? What's that underlying sort of pathophys that we really need to know about in terms of how we go about resuscitating these patients? Yeah, Mike. So the primary physiologic mechanisms include severe hyperglycemia, hyperosmolality, dehydration. And it's key to remember that there is really minimal to no ketosis arising in HHS. So as Peter mentioned, HHS is usually precipitated by a physiologic stressor, typically infection. And this results in increased insulin resistance, which in turn leads to hyperglycemia. And as mentioned before, HHS is not associated with ketone body production, 
because there's enough insulin around to prevent lipolysis and to prevent the development of ketosis. The cells have difficulty using the glucose due to insulin resistance, and the counter-regulatory hormones further worsen this insulin resistance. Glucose, you get increased levels of glucagon in HHS that result in gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis, leading to further elevations of your serum glucose. This all leads to glucosuria, osmotic diuresis, and then the really debilitating pathophysiologic mechanism, which is dehydration. You wind up with a vicious cycle of worsening of hyperglycemia, worsening of osmotic diuresis, and further dehydration so that patients with HHS can have as much as 22 liters of fluid loss in a 100 kilogram patient. So the typical amount of fluid deficit ranges between 10 to 22 liters in a 100 kilogram patient. So again, osmotic diuresis further increases your serum osmolality and your tonicity. And notably, hyperglycemia also induces a pro-inflammatory state with elevated cytokines, inflammatory cytokines, reactive oxygenation species, and oxidative stress. So again, a number of mechanisms, all leading to significant dehydration, oxidative stress, and a pro-inflammatory state. Outstanding, Rob. And just to repeat, really key take-home features once again are that severe hyperglycemia, hyperosmolality, and really significant dehydration in the absence of ketosis to contrast that a bit with DKA. Well, John, let's actually take a step back now. We may not have the bedside glucose. Give us an idea of what their clinical presentation is. So patients come in, they have HHS. We're going to get to that diagnosis. What are the clinical features that should tip us off that this could be HHS? Yeah. So, you know, the way I kind of think about this part is, so let's just say I'm working in the emergency department in one of our physician and triage shifts, and I'm the first person to see the patient when they walk in and they're often brought in by family or maybe even by EMS. And it's really hard to tell what's actually going on because these patients, sometimes when they're really sick, can't really give you all that much of a history. And that's because one of the hallmark features of this disease is they often come up with some degree of neurologic abnormality. So over the course of days to even weeks, they become progressively more confused, altered even. And this is often seen when the serum osmolality is greater than 330. So a lot of patients come in confused. And on the further end of that spectrum, they can present if they have really bad cerebral edema or with the dehydration, they can develop seizure, coma, or even in rare cases, focal neurologic deficits. But you know, that's the more extreme end. Most patients, when they come in, will complain of kind of the usual things that we think about with hyperglycemia, right? So polyuria, polydipsia, maybe some just fatigue, generalized weakness or visual abnormalities like blurry vision. In the earlier stages, the symptoms are tend to be a little bit more benign, but poorly described. And then lastly, thinking about, well, this is often caused by infection. You can certainly have any of the symptoms related to the infection or dehydration, right? So these patients come in terribly dehydrated. So you'll notice they'll have dry mucous membrane. They'll be tachycardic. They may have a narrow pulse pressure. If they're really hypotense from hypovolemia, or if they're septic can give you a wide pulse pressure, hypotension, 
And with this really bad dehydration, you may notice just sitting across the room, sunken eyes, or if you, you know, shake the patient's hand, some decreased skin turgor. So, you know, their skin's really kind of wrinkly and can stretch out a little bit. So those are kind of the things that I'm looking out for. Outstanding. Well, that really helps me out a lot. You know, when we get, say, an older patient, they're altered, these other symptoms, I really need to be checking a bedside glucose. And, and to that end, let's touch on a few diagnostic features and actually contrast that to what we commonly diagnose and manage, and that's DKA. And there's several definitions, actually, criteria for HHS. And I'm just going to stick right now for the sake of this podcast with the criteria put forth by the American Diabetes Association. So glucose values, what are they in HHS? Typically serum glucose has to be greater than or equal to 600 milligrams per deciliter. In contrast to DKA, which is an acidosis state, pH in HHS is greater than 7.3, serum bicarbonate greater than 18 millimoles per liter. And then these patients have a hypertonicity or elevated serum osmolality, and that's greater than or equal to 320 milliosms per kilogram. Now, with respect to ketones, we talked about minimal to no ketosis. There may actually be a little bit of ketonuria and even a small amount of ketonemia. And I think that's an important thing is that Depending on the underlying etiology, Peter went through the causes, and let's just say it is an etiology that results in, say, a lactic acidosis. Well, a patient who actually has HHS could demonstrate acidosis, a lower bicarb, an increased anion gap in the setting of really severe levels of hyperglycemia or hypertonicity, once again, due to the underlying etiology. So while these are the key diagnostic criteria by the ADA, know that it is ultimately dependent on the etiology and don't exclude HHS because it has some crossover with DKA. So to that end, what do we want to get when we suspect this? We have the elevated glucose, the severely elevated glucose. Well, your CBC, your CMP, looking for your bicarbonate, looking for your elevated or absence of elevated anion gap. Lipase, looking for pancreatitis as an etiology, but the VBG for pH, importantly, getting that serum osmolality, serum and urinary ketones along with a urinalysis. And as a final pearl in terms of diagnosis, as you're getting your numbers back and you are evaluating someone with neurologic abnormalities, if by chance you note an elevated osmolar gap, and we would typically think about that in the toxic alcohol bucket, that really shouldn't be present with HHS. And if you do have an elevated osmolal gap, that's really going to be significant or indicative of a different etiology or diagnosis than HHS. So with that, Peter, John's really given us great symptoms to think about HHS. We now know that the diagnostic criteria to confirm it, most importantly, the meat of this podcast, we've confirmed HHS. How do we treat, resuscitate, and manage these people? Thanks, Mike. When we look at this, the management is not too dissimilar from DKA. So it's the same kind of thought process. Our primary goal here is to treat the precipitating event. And so again, if we're thinking 40 to 60% of the time, this is caused by infection, let's look for that source, treat with antibiotics early, and also resuscitate with fluids. And I think that that's key for us to remember. We also want to correct that osmolality correct the hyperglycemia, as well as look for electrolyte abnormalities that need correction. When we talk about the IV fluids, 
Patients with HHS, they will typically have an enormous water deficit, somewhere along the lines of 100 to 200 cc's per kilogram water deficit. So fluids improve the osmolality, they restore perfusion, they reduce the stress hormones that are being released, and they actually enhance insulin sensitivity, makes it more likely that glucose will find its way into the cells. Many patients with HHS tend to be on the older variety, right? And they may have concomitant comorbidities, so we may have to be careful with how fast we administer those fluids. We know that rapid changes in serum osmols and tonicity can also result in cerebral edema and osmotic demyelination syndromes. So we need to be cautious with that. Currently, there are really no clear recommendations in regards to the type of fluid and the speed of repletion, because it's going to vary patient to patient. However, most of the guidelines do recommend one to one and a half liters of normal saline in the first hour to avoid rapid correction of hyperosmolality. Again, we need to follow our sodiums incredibly closely. If correcting the serum sodium for glucose reveals either hyponatremia or hypernatremia, we're going to be sure to slowly correct the sodium. So if it's wildly disparate in either direction, we're going to be cautious with how rapidly we correct. And we're going to use that correction of less than 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour, or less than 10 milliequivalents per liter per day using the corrected sodium as a baseline. Again, that speed, we have to be cautious with how rapidly we correct. And usually the 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour keeps you in a safe range. When we talk about serum osmolality, we're talking about managing serum osmolality and hypertonicity. They're the key components of treatment and they're directly linked to the correction of sodium. We know that serial measures of serum osmolality or calculated serum osmolality is recommended, and you're going to monitor that every one to two hours. If you're unsure about this, simply Google MD Calc, and you'll be able to get your calculation straight out if your lab doesn't offer it for you. We know that rapid correction of serum osmolality is the proposed mechanism of cerebral edema. And that's something we would like to avoid at all costs. A change of less than three millimolar per kg per hour is recommended. A faster rate may result, again, in neurological complications. So we're going to follow not just the sodium, but the osmoles as well and how rapidly those correct. If osmolality increases or remains unchanged after initial fluid administration, you want to consider a hypotonic fluid such as half normal saline. So think along those lines. All right, Peter, that's a great start. So fluids got to be very careful. I love the pearl about really paying attention to serum sodium, probably checking electrolytes every one to two hours to make sure we're doing that correctly. And then I think the pearl about serum osmolality is something that is, I don't think, widely known. It's certainly something as we were preparing for this podcast not something I'll admit that I readily follow with that frequency. And it's probably something that I need to change practice and include in my resuscitation of patients with HHS. Now, John, what about a few other important pearls in the management of these patients? We led off a few minutes ago, really talking about correcting the hyperglycemia and paying tight attention to electrolytes. Give us some pearls there. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'm paying attention to the glucose. I'm paying attention to the sodium, maybe paying attention to osmolality. But to be honest, I'm with you, Mike, I don't focus on that or I'm sending that serially. But the other one that you want to really think about is your potassium right now, unlike our DKA patients that often come in with probably a little bit of a higher potassium in HHS, the total body potassium is actually decreased quite often. And so thinking about some of the other therapies we might use like insulin, you really want to be thoughtful about this and maybe kind of pause until you get that BMP back, or if you have a potassium on your blood gas to check in, see where the lie of the land is. So remember, unlike DK, where K is often a little bit higher in HHS, K potassium is often a little bit lower in these patients. And so we really want to keep a normal goal, like a normal potassium somewhere between four and five. Now, if it's less than three and a half, I'd consider repleting some potassium before giving any insulin. And if you're kind of on the lower end, maybe like three and a half to four, you might want to supplement potassium while you're giving some treatment, as long as the patient's renal function isn't like out of this world. Certainly think about things like phosphorus. So if, if the phosphate level is less than one, I'm going to replete that. And really I'm just checking these every two hours or so, just because there's so much going on. It's such a dynamic phase of resuscitation that these can change pretty quickly. And then getting to kind of the effects of insulin, let's talk about it. So an insulin infusion really isn't mandatory in the initial management of HHS patients, specifically if they don't have ketoacidosis. These patients often are type two diabetics. And so they may be less insulin sensitive and the hyperglycemia may be more of a concentration issue. And so as you start giving your resuscitative fluids, that sugar should come down, but occasionally you will need insulin. So the dosing in HHS is a little bit different from that from DKA. And that's only because these patients do make some insulin on their own. So an insulin infusion without a bolus can probably be started somewhere around 0.05 to 0.1 units per kilo per hour. That 0.1 is usually what I start my DKA patients at, but you can probably start a little bit less, somewhere around half that dose. If the patients are on long acting insulin, it's okay to give them their home dose after you've gotten them a little bit better resuscitated. So as you're approaching down to a better glucose and you've gotten them fluid resuscitated, you can probably add on that long acting insulin downstairs in the ED. And what I'm looking for in terms of my glucose correction rate is probably somewhere around 50 to 75 milligrams per deciliter per hour as I'm checking my regular finger stick. And certainly as you're getting down to euglycemia and not completely normal, but probably around glucose threshold of around 300 milligrams per deciliter, that's probably when I'm turning off my insulin and continuing to focus on treating the patient for whatever the underlying cause is in addition to the usual lab monitoring that I'm doing up until then. Outstanding. Peter N. John, for those incredible pearls, focusing on fluids, the osmolality component, the electrolytes with potassium, along with really appropriate dosing of insulin. Well, Rob, let's bring this to a close and just touch on one last topic. And let's just say we've resuscitated them, but uh, you know what? We're probably a little too aggressive in terms of our resuscitation. Got into trouble and maybe we hit up against some of those complications that we alluded to a little while ago. And I think Peter talked about cerebral edema and osmotic demyelination syndrome. Any pearls on those complications as we wind down this topic? 
Yeah, Mike, the problem with the complications in HHS is that in the treatment of HHS is that they're severe and they often are irreversible complications. And these two complications, cerebral edema and osmotic demyelination syndrome, both occur from overly aggressive reduction in serum osmolality in excess of the diffusion of intracellular idiogenic osmols. So what happens is when you reduce the osmolality too quickly, the CNS cannot compensate by diffusing idiogenic osmols. And so you can get cerebral edema if that affects the cerebral cortex. And with that, you can have confusion, seizures, and even herniation. So if the reduction in serum osmolality is affecting the cerebral cortex, again, you'll get cerebral edema. And you, of course, should get imaging of the brain in those cases with either CT or MRI. MRI is preferred. And in these cases, you may see areas of low density with loss of the gray-white matter differentiation. You can also see other patterns of cerebral edema, like loss of cisterns and loss of sulcal spaces. So that's what happens when it occurs in the cerebral cortex. If the rapid reduction affects the brainstem, you get osmotic demyelination syndrome, and the pons is particularly susceptible to this. And so the signs of this would be pseudobulbar palsy, horizontal gaze nystagmus, and the worst complication, the most feared complication is quadriplegia, which is a spastic type quadriplegia that often is irreversible. And again, in these cases, when it's suspected, you should get imaging with CT or MRI. And MRI is the test of choice. In these cases, you would see hyperintensities in the pons on T2-weighted imaging. So again, the problem with the complications of treatment of HHS is they're really bad complications and they're often irreversible. All right, gentlemen, this has been a very fun and educational podcast. Thanks so much for taking us through really critical components in the management of a critically ill, potentially life-threatening endocrine emergency, and that is HHS. Things that I'm taking away from this podcast for sure is that HHS in general occurs in older patients. They often have significant comorbidities. It's a little bit more insidious over days to weeks, but these patients are significantly dehydrated. They've often got significant electrolyte disturbances. And as I alluded to, they have a much higher mortality rate than DKA. As Peter's talked about, really, if you had to just remember two causes, infection and medication noncompliance, that's going to get 60 to 80% of cases in terms of the etiologies. Making that diagnosis, glucose greater than or equal to 600, serum pH greater than 7.3, serum bicarb greater than 18, and then minimal to no ketosis. Fluids. Definitely need to rehydrate these patients, but be careful with fluid resuscitation. Really pay attention to serum sodium, serum osmolality, and serum potassium. If need be, initiate insulin, but as John gave us that pearl, it can likely be a lower dose of insulin compared to that with which we would administer for our DKA patients. And then as we're resuscitating them, the feared complications, osmotic demyelination syndrome, and cerebral edema.
Gentlemen, any final pearls you want to add before we close this out? Wish everybody well. Yeah, I have one for you, Mike. And this process, this disease process is one of time. It doesn't suddenly snap and occur. It occurs slowly over time. So the correction of this disease needs to be likewise, needs to be slow and ginger, not rapid reversible. They didn't suddenly become hyperglycemic. They slowly got that way. And in slowly getting that way, a lot of the urine was loaded with glucose and water followed, right? And so they're dehydrated over time. And so rehydrating them has to be in a ginger, careful, measured fashion. Great point, Peter. John? Yeah. One thing I kind of just dovetail onto that, it's a great point, Peter, is that you may know the kind of trajectory of these patients, but the time might take a little while. It's okay to put these patients in the ICU. They need time. And unfortunately, as much as we get impatient in the emergency department, it's one of those diseases where we know the treatment. We have a pretty good idea what the treatment course is going to be. But to our dear colleagues upstairs, they just need time and then hopefully they should get better. But this isn't something where they necessarily have to go to the floor just because they're not on an insulin drip. They still need regular labs, periodic, frequent exams. So it does require some critical care. Well said. Rob? Yeah. My final point is repeat neuro exams. And this is a disease entity in which you really got to be meticulous about your neuro exams. You've got to perform a baseline neuro exam and then repeat it every hour or two, along with your other checks of serum sodium and so forth, because this is an entity that's fraught with neurological complications and stay ahead of that. You really want to be able to diagnose that. And we often will perform a baseline neuro exam and fail to repeat that neuro exam on a frequent basis. And this is one population that I would do that. Great, great points by the three of you. And with that, let's close this podcast out on a critically ill endocrine emergency. Once again, I said it was great fun and I learned a lot over the course of this podcast. Our congrats once again to Britt Long, George Willis, and their co-authors. A really wonderful summary article on this published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine just within the last few months. Please let us know if you have any follow-up questions on this podcast, but if not, we'll bring this to a close. So looking forward to talking with you on our next podcast. Bye for now.